Great worship tonight. Man, if that didn't bless you, your blesser's broken. That was good. Second John. Second John. Not first, not third. We'll get to third in a couple weeks. Second John. As we finish out the summer, we're dealing with these great and powerful, yet very little small books at the end of the New Testament. We're in a five-week study in the book of Jude on Sunday mornings. We just finished a two-week study of Philemon on Tuesday night, and now we're going to dive in for a couple weeks to 2 John, and then we're going to dive into a couple weeks in 3 John to close out the summer and head into fall. Before we dive into 2 John, just sort of to give a, a little bit of a background, obviously the Apostle John wrote five books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote the book of Revelation, and then he wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. One of the things that I like about John is that John is one of these guys that can take things that can be really hard to wrap our minds around, or they they almost seem abstract in some way, and it almost seems like we're overwhelmed with so much information, and John can cut through all that and make it really simple and clear. You ever had a teacher like that that could take sort of hard to understand complicated things and be able to help you to understand it and cut through all the muck and make it simple? That's John. That's what John does. In fact, one of the other sort of ways that John teaches is through a lot of repetition. I think something is to be said for that, that he would be the kind of teacher or coach or whatever that would just continue to do something over and over and over again until we got it, until it became second nature, until we grasped it. That's why throughout his letters, you'll find that he repeats himself over and over and over again because he wants us to get it. For instance... And the only reason I'm sharing this is because he, he picks up these very same themes in 2nd and 3rd John as well. In 1st John, mainly what John is trying to get across in that book is that there are three sort of diagnostic tests, if you will. Three things that make a Christian a Christian. There's a doctrinal test, John says. And that is... Believing what the Bible says about Jesus. That's what makes a Christian a Christian. And so over in 1 John, over and over again, he always goes back. This is what the Bible's revealed about Jesus. Is this what we believe? That makes us a Christian. The second is a relational test. Do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because John said, hey, you can claim to be a Christian, but if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't pass the test, if you will. And the third test is a moral test. John says, if we claim to be Christians, then we should be living in accordance with God's Word, the Bible. Those are sort of the three tests, and John will repeat those over and over again throughout 1 John. The reason I share those with, again, us tonight is you're going to see a couple of those show up again here in 2 John. Now, tonight like I've been doing in these smaller books, because I really want to get into this and dig deeply a little bit, Uh, we're only going to do the first six verses tonight. And then we're going to pick it up and do verses 7 through 13 next week. So John here also, to sort of set the stage, 
is writing to a beleaguered local church. They are beleaguered because they have just went through, for lack of a better way to say it, a church split. There's been a large group of people who left this church. You find out about this back in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, they went out from us, but they were really not of us because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And they left because there was this battle for truth within the church. And there were certain Christians who stood up for the truth. Sort of reminds us of the message of Jude, doesn't it? Where Jude calls upon Christians to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. It's amazing to me how these messages can coincide with each other. So John is writing this to encourage a beleaguered church who has stood up for the truth, and yet because of that, there's been this huge group who've left, and they sort of feel punched in the gut. They sort of feel discouraged. And John is writing this to them to encourage them. Notice, first of all, then in chapter 1, because it's only one chapter, uh, in verse 1, that John, first of all, identifies himself as the elder. Now, this term here in this context, a little bit different than the way we would use that term today. That term today speaks about spiritual leaders in a local church, and certainly that, that fits. But John, being an apostle, being who he was, he was much more than just an elder in a local church. He was sort of an elder over many churches in the sense that he was given the responsibility to look out for many local churches. And in a sense, that's what elders do in a local church, is part of their charge and responsibility is to look out for the church in general, the whole. And that's a little bit different perspective because, for instance, in our church, all of you are involved in maybe one or two ministries. And your focus within even the Oasis is going to be what you're involved with. And I get that. That's how you view the church, is through what you're involved in, the group that you're involved in, what you're doing. But every church needs people who are able and willing to step back and see the bigger picture and not only be able to view the local church through one or two or three ministries, but through all the ministries and to take everything into account and see how everything is fitting together and working. You see, and that's really what an elder does. And so John is writing this as an elder. Notice he doesn't even identify himself as an apostle because he's so well known as the apostle John. He wants to use the term elder because in a sense by writing this, he's looking out for this church. He's writing this to encourage them because he knows what they've been through. Notice also he gives a very interesting name to this local church. He calls them an elect lady and her children. Now there are some who interpret this that John is actually writing to just a single individual lady and her children. But I do not take it that way. I think there's a lot of great evidence for the fact that he's writing here to a local church and he's just using a feminine 
description of the church, which actually fits very well in with the New Testament teaching that the church is the bride of Christ, which again is a term of encouragement to these people. Because notice in this, he's saying, you are elect, you are chosen. God picked you out as his bride. He sought you. He bought you with his own blood. And though you may not feel very beautiful right now because of what you went through, and you may be a little discouraged and you may be a little beleaguered, you are beautiful in God's eyes. You're an elect lady. And then he says in verse 1, I love you. Again, that's really important. That we tell each other as Christians that we love each other and, and that we care about each other, that we verbalize our affection. But obviously beyond that, obviously love in the Bible is a very active thing. So it's not just a matter of saying we love each other, it's laying down our lives and truly serving one another and ministering to each other. And as Jesus did, putting on the robe or the apron of service as he did around the Passover meal and washed his disciples' feet. We're going to talk more about that. But notice, John doesn't stop with, I love you. He says, I love you in truth. <laughs> wow. Remember, they had just stood up for the truth. And it was because they stood up for the truth that they went through what they went through. And John is in a sense saying, that's okay. Because guess what? Love and truth from God's perspective can never be untangled, if you will. Love and truth always walk together. You cannot have love from God's perspective, biblical love, apart from truth. And you cannot have truth apart from love. Now I'm going to say this here, but it'll be emphasized as we move on down through here. I'm sure in their case, because it's certainly been true in my life, and I'm sure it's been true in your life, that at times as a Christian, when you have stood up for truth... You have been called unloving, haven't you? And yet, from the Bible's perspective, to truly love is to stand for truth. A person really can't say that they are a loving person Apart from the truth. In fact, even in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul lists the character of love in 1 Corinthians 13, what's he say? Love rejoices in what? Truth. In other words, truth is always to be our governing, guiding principle for living. I've got to love in truth. I've got to serve in truth. Notice Jesus, even back in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, told the woman at the well, you've got to worship me in spirit and in what? Truth. <laughs> truth has to guide everything a Christian does, including love. For instance, the greatest example of this would be God himself, obviously. 
Even in salvation, Bible clearly says, John 3, 16, God so loved the world. God loves the whole world. But when God offers His free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but by me. So God loves the whole world, but the world is only going to experience His love by embracing the truth. If we're not willing to embrace the truth, then we will never experience His love because love and truth always go hand in hand. And John wanted to reinforce that fact to them. Then he says, and not I alone. In other words, I think he's reminding this local church who's beleaguered, you're not in this alone. You have other brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and are praying for you and who want to encourage you as well because he says, not I alone, but also all those who know the truth. By the way, the word know there means to become thoroughly acquainted with something. One of the challenges God gave me as I studied this passage was how am I becoming more thoroughly acquainted with God's truth? Because how can I live the truth? How can I love in truth? How can I worship God in spirit and truth if I'm not becoming more thoroughly acquainted with truth? It sort of, again, goes back to Sunday's message. How can I take practical steps in my life to become more intimately acquainted with the Word of God? Remember again what Jesus said in John 8, if you continue in my teaching, you will be my disciples. And then if you continue in my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8. So all of us have the responsibility to become more thoroughly acquainted with the truth. Now again, jumping a little ahead here. The truth that we talk about in the Bible, though, isn't something that sits up here in my head. It's not just an intellectual exercise or apprehension of stuff. Truth, obviously, as we're going to see here tonight, is to be lived out. In fact, I'm living truth when I'm loving the way I should. Again, going hand in hand. Verse 2. Because of the truth that resides in us. In other words, John is also saying the whole ground or reason of why I'm writing this letter and why I'm doing what I'm doing is because of the truth that I have. And it resides in all of us as Christians. That's a pretty cool concept, isn't it? That when you and I embrace the truth, When we learn truth, when we meditate on truth, the truth actually becomes absorbed, if you will, into us. It's something that we can literally internalize and carry with us at all times. And he goes on to say, this truth will be with us forever. Because God's truth, again, will never change. God's truth will stand when everything else falls and fades away. God's truth will be there. Which is why Jesus even said to those who were following him, if you want a true foundation for your life, listen to what I'm telling you and live your life based upon what I'm telling you. 
then you'll have a foundation that when the storms of life come, it'll stand the storms. But if you don't listen to what I'm telling you and you don't live out what I'm telling you, you don't base your life on the foundation of truth, when the storms come, the foundation of your life will crumble. And he says it'll be a great loss. Truth. Now again, going back a little bit even to Sunday, we live in a world where this is a challenge because many people do not even believe in an absolute truth anymore. And like I said, even in the church, truth is minimized. Truth isn't important anymore in many churches. That's why the Bible is minimized and given a very small place in the structure and and formulation of what local churches do because it's not about truth anymore. It's about all these other things of why people go to church And so these folks stood up for the truth, and John wants to encourage them in it. Notice then in verse 3, he tells them, look, God wants to bless your life. He wants to bless your life with grace, mercy, and peace. But notice he says, first of all, that these blessings are shared with other believers. And, And most times in the New Testament, when Paul or John or Peter or somebody greets somebody at the beginning of their letter, they say something like, grace, mercy, and peace to you, or grace and love to you. But notice here, it's a little bit different. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. We will, as Christians, share all of these blessings. But notice he also says, that the blessing doesn't come from us, it doesn't come from a church, it doesn't come from anyone else other than from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. You and I can't create grace, mercy, and peace. These are gifts, these are blessings given to us by God the Father and by the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are blessings that we all can share as believers. But notice, finally in verse 3, he says, these blessings have a condition. If we truly want to enjoy God's grace, mercy, and peace in our lives, notice he says they are in truth and love. Many Christians wonder why they're not experiencing God's blessing. Why am I not experiencing His grace, His peace, His mercy in my life? Well, how about love? How about truth? Is there something in those areas that we need to take responsibility for that needs to be changed in order for us to really begin to experience the blessing of God? Can't have one without the other. They're so closely tied together. Then notice verse 4. I rejoiced greatly. The word means to be glad, to be well, to be thriving exceedingly beyond measure. In other words, John says, guys, I can't tell you how spiritually happy and encouraged I was. Notice, because I found some of your children living according to the truth. A couple things. First of all, we see how thrilled John was that some Christians in that church 
we're living according to the truth. I want to go back, though, and pick this apart a little bit because it's important. The word found means a discovery through inquiry, examination, observation. In other words, John isn't basing this on, well, you told me you were living according to the truth. Anybody can claim they're living according to the truth. John said, I made sure that before I made this statement, that I took time to really check out how the people in this church were living. Are they just talking it? Or are they walking it? And the idea that John is giving us here is one that's found throughout the Bible. If I'm truly living the Christian life, it will be my practice. It will be my habit. It will be my manner of life. Will I sin? Yeah. Will I fall? Yeah. But that's not going to be the norm. The norm is going to be, I'm living according to the Word of God. That's going to be the norm of my life. Now, even though he's greatly rejoiced that he's found some of the children in this local church living according to the truth, I'm sure it broke his heart a little because he had a pastor's heart to have to use that word, some. Because <laughs> that means not everybody in that local church was living according to the truth. And I don't know about you, but if we care about other believers at all, it will always be our desire to, to want all believers to be living according to the truth. Because we understand if we're living according to the truth, that that's the only way other Christians are truly going to experience the highest life, the abundant life, and the blessed life that God wants to give them. It's only going to be in living according to the truth. That's part of the reason why a local church needs to become a family. Why we strive so hard here at the Oasis to truly be a family is because how can we really teach each other the truth, pray for each other to live the truth, encourage each other to live in the truth, and even hold each other accountable to live according to the truth if we're not family? Now, obviously, that presents other challenges. That means that we may be closer to each other than people are in other local churches where they just sort of go in and are never really encouraged to get intimately connected with each other. And it's going to be a lot easier for them to go into a church, just sort of sit on the sidelines, be a spectator, soak in whatever they do and leave. But they're also, by that small investment, never really going to get out of that local church experience what God intends for us to get out of a local church experience. Yeah, by being closer to each other, just like a family, <laughs> that means there's going to be times we drive each other crazy. But at least we're close enough to do that. And hopefully we learn to work through our issues and problems together like a family? Again, yeah, it's an extra challenge. But it's something at the Oasis, at least, we need to keep in mind because 
like anything, there's a good side to doing something and there's always sort of an opposite side of that. The good side of having a church like this that encourages us to get connected with each other and get involved with each other in our lives and be a family together is there can be some unbelievable relationships and and accountability partners and prayer partners and ministry partners and life partners and all of that that come out of this that we would never have any other way. But out of that closeness also can come rubs every once in a while. Remember, though, when the Bible says iron sharpens iron, that means friction. And sometimes God uses the friction in our lives to actually grow us. Anyway, I got off there a little bit. I apologize. It's that pastor thing coming out of me. So he says, I rejoice greatly because I found some of your children living according to to the truth. Again, God's truth is always to be lived out. If somehow I'm taking in truth and I'm not living it out, I may as well then be taking in error. I may as well be sitting in front of a false teacher because what is the difference in my life if I'm sitting taking in stuff that's false And I'm sitting here taking in stuff that's true, but I'm not living it out. What's the difference? In my life, there's not going to be any difference. And John is simply saying we're all challenged that the more we become thoroughly acquainted with the truth, the more we need to live it out. I love this word live too here in verse 4. It means to regulate one's life by. In other words, God's truth is what should always regulate my life. And then the other concept of this word is to make progress. The way you and I make progress in our life as a Christian is to live according to the truth. And what's one of the ways I can live according to truth? Love. Because love and truth go together. So when I'm truly loving, I'm walking according to truth. When I'm walking according to truth, then I'm loving. Verse 5. But now I ask you, lady, I request, I entreat, I beseech you, lady, not as if I were writing a new commandment, a recent commandment, an unheard of commandment, to you, but the one we had from the beginning. In other words, what I'm about to encourage you to do, you know, this isn't something new. Part of what the false teachers back in 1 John were doing when they came into the church was they were trying to entice people with something new. Trying to get them to go after something new. And John says, you know, there's something about going back to what we already know. And are we really living what we already know? And so John says, this isn't going to be something new. It's something we've had from the beginning. And here it is, that we love one another. Now, before we talk about this love again of loving one another... Something really 
powerfully hit me in this whole passage. You notice how many times throughout this passage, we're going to see it again here in verse 6, how many times John uses the word commandment? That walking according to truth from God's perspective and loving is not optional from God's perspective. It is a commandment. Again, going back to Sunday's message about a misunderstanding of God's grace. It's, and I want to be careful here because I don't want anyone here tonight to misunderstand what I'm trying to convey. So I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit takes over here at this moment, especially. I'm always praying for that, but especially now. I know what many Christians mean today, and I've said the same thing when we say, look, our faith in Christ is not about rules, it's about a relationship. I totally understand where we're all coming from, because like I said, I've used that same terminology. But I think sometimes, in our zeal to make rules go away, because, again, there's that concept that rules were for the Old Testament economy, and when we come into the New Testament, we don't have any rules anymore. Because we're in grace. That somewhere along the line, we've got to be careful as a Christian that we don't cross a line because... God clearly throughout the New Testament says, I command you to do this. It's an obligation, if you will. It's a rule that you better follow as a Christian. Because it's not like I'm telling you this and then you as a Christian go, well, you know, Lord, if I feel like loving, I will. See, Many times, even as Christians, we reduce the concept of love to a feeling or an emotion or a sentiment because we don't remember it's a command. It's not optional. It's not, well, you know, I'll love if they love me back. Then, obviously, then the whole love your enemies has got to go out the window because we would never feel like loving our enemies. See, the reason why God can command us to love is because it's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit if we yield to Him in our lives. And so by using this concept of commandment, John is also saying, does what God say hold authority in your life? Does it hold weight when God says something? Do you sit up and go, this isn't just something that, you know, my spouse is asking me to do, uh, a friend is that God has said, this is what we must do. It's a command. And His command is that we love one another. If you and I as Christians don't love each other, basically we're just being disobedient. See, Christian love is an obedient response to God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ. And by the way, obviously this word agape means to actively love. 
to supernaturally love, to selflessly love, to sacrificially love. But then I also want, very important, those two words after love, one another, means we also are responsible to reciprocally love each other. In other words, in the body of Christ, our love for each other is never to be one-sided. We're to love one another. It's to go both ways. The way God wants it to happen is that we're all laying down our lives loving each other all the time. And in that, then we're living the truth. So that's why then in verse 6, he says, now this is love. You see what John is doing? When we went back to the beginning and I said how John can cut through a lot of stuff that's... Because a lot of times even as Christians, we're like, what is truth? And, and, and define love. And, and how, how, do I, how do I understand these concepts? John makes it very clear. He says, hey, you want to know what love is? It's living according to truth. You want to know what truth is? It's loving. You want to know what love is? He's going to say in verse 6, being obedient. That's what love is. Notice what he says. This is love. This is the character of love. That we walk according to His commandments. Well, that's... Even a child can understand that. Okay, John, thank you for giving me something I can get my mind around. Because, man, when you start talking about love, you you go, okay, well, what's that... Just whatever God's asking you to do, do it. That's love. That is love from God's perspective. That we regulate our life, that we make progress. Because very interesting, the word walk there that's in my translation in verse 6 is the very same Greek word that's used in verse 4 for living according to the truth. And it's the same word that's used at the end of verse 6 when he says, thus we should walk in it. So twice in my Bible it's translated walk, once it's translated living. Same Greek word, to regulate your life by. And this is love, John says, verse 6, that we walk according to his Commandments. See, a willing obedience to God's word is an expression of our love. No Christian can really claim to be a loving Christian if they're living in disobedience. John says that's foreign. Love for God and for others will be expressed by me being obedient to God's commandments. That's how I show love. Because notice, again, how this all ties together. We want to compartmentalize things. And and again, John says, no, it's all tied together. If you and I obey God's commandments, then everything that we do will be for the benefit of everyone else. See, it's when we're selfish and when we're doing things that, that is disobedient to God's commands, that not only do we hurt ourselves, but we hurt each other. So John says, you want to be a loving person? Just obey God's commandments. You'll be the best lover ever. Because that's what love is. Love is being obedient. Walking according to the commandments. And this is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, thus you should walk in it. Wow. John takes these concepts of 
truth and love and obedience and ties them all together and and really says, guys, we make this harder than it has to be. You want to be loving? Then live according to the truth. You, you want to be loving? Walk according to His commandments. You want to live in truth? Obey His commandments and love. What a powerful letter from a pastor who I believe actually pastored this church at one time. Who no longer at this moment in history was their pastor, but cared enough about this local church that he wanted to write them a letter of encouragement because they'd just been given a gut shot. They've just had a large group of people just leave their church because they were willing to take a stand for truth. And John says, don't feel bad about standing up for truth. That was actually the most loving thing you could ever do. Because we must learn to love in truth. Can never separate the truth, the two. And there will be, I guarantee you, as there has been in my life, times in your life where you will even have another Christian look you in the face and tell you you are being very unloving when you stand up for the truth. And you, you and I just need to be encouraged and remember the words of Second John. John says there is no real love apart from truth. It all ties together. Let's pray. God, I, I just feel very impressed to just thank you for this group of people here tonight. I don't know each one of these folks as well as maybe I know some others, but Lord, the ones that I know at all in this room, I know that they truly have a heart for you. They truly believe what the Bible says about Jesus. They truly want to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they truly want to live according to your word. The whole reason, Lord, why these folks come out every Tuesday, I believe, is because they care about truth. They want to become more thoroughly acquainted with the truth of your word. Because they understand that the only way, Lord, that they're ever going to really experience the abundant life that you have for us all and truly be free is to know the truth and allow that truth to set them free. And God, we've also been reminded tonight that we have great challenges before us. 
that we live in a world, even in the church today, where truth is minimized and placed at the sidelines. And yet, Lord, we are seeing how important truth is to you. Help it to be important to us as well. And help us, Lord, not to get to a place where we accumulate the truth in our heads, but we fail to apply it to our lives and live it out. And Lord, we've also been reminded tonight that being a Christian means being challenged in relationships at times. That the closer we get to each other and the more we navigate life together, that there's going to be times where we rub each other the wrong way and we've got to learn how to work through it and get through it and become even closer because of it. Because, Lord, the only other alternative is that we don't do church the way you tell us to, the way you command us to. And that is, Lord, that we just sit on the sidelines and become a spectator and never really get involved and never really get to know anybody at our church and just sort of sit on the fringe. Lord, help none of us to be satisfied with that. That even though it's a greater challenge to navigate relationships and to learn to get along with people and and to learn to do that, that, Lord, the blessing of it and the fruit of it is so much greater if we're just willing to invest in relationships. And certainly, Lord, we're not just talking about even our investment in human relationships. Because, God, we recognize there needs to be an investment in our relationship with you as well. That we need to care enough, love you enough, to, Lord, make time with you and time in your word of highest priority. Because, Lord, where it all begins to make sense is that Yes, you command us to do things, even in the age of grace. But as Jesus said, when we understand that these commands are for our own good and for our best and highest interest, then even Jesus said, God's commands then are no burden at all. They're not a burden to obey God's commands. In fact, they're a joy to obey. Because we know, Lord, in obeying these commands, we experience a life that can be found in no other way. God, I pray, I truly pray for revival to begin in our church, the Oasis. Lord, I certainly would love to see revival in our whole country. But Lord, that's way too big for me to even wrap my mind around. But what I can focus on, what I can do something about, what I can pray for, and what I can make a difference in, 
is what happens in our church family. God, I'm just praying that in the days and weeks and months ahead before Jesus comes, that there will be a fire of revival that spreads through our church. That, Lord, we may see people come to Jesus Christ. That we may see lives turned around. That we may see Christians really get committed and consecrated and serious about their Christian life like never before. That we would experience a love in this church that none of us have ever experienced before. God, thank you for who you are and for loving us so much. Go with us the rest of this week. Inspire us, God. Stir our hearts. Motivate us, God. Excite us about you and what you're doing in this world like no one else can. And then help us to make a difference and impact other people all around us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, God bless you.